Well, hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to another Thoughts on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris, and I'm joined today, of course, by Drew Davendale. I've waited my whole life for this. The world's going to start over. I'm a burn at all. Uh, yeah, hi. A dramatic introduction there, and one probably not related to the rest of the content of this podcast. Sorry to get your hopes up. Um, yes, it's... Well, it was a quote from one of the films, so it's at least tangentially related. <laughs> yeah. So, it's March. We're coming towards the end of it. So I guess that means we're just going to talk about a bunch of films that we've seen. And we've got a few to get through. So I suppose we'll just start straight in there with Black Panther. In previous Marvel films, it has been established that Vibranium, the rare ally from which Captain America's shield and the evil robot Ultron, amongst other things, are made, is a jolly useful metal, all things considered. But not really much else. In Black Panther, Marvel's latest though, Vibranium is now magic. Yes. Oh, nothing on Arthur C. Clarke. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic sort of way. No, more in a actual magic sense. <laughs> While there have been aliens like Thor, the MCU thus far has largely been based on technology. At least in-universe technology. <laughs> not, not, not actual technology, you know. But rather than, say, superpowers or mutations. And that really, again, technology in the universe's terms and not actual science. Don't think too hard about the regular-sized man transforming into a green giant, okay? But eating some vibranium makes you a god, and somehow having a lot of it allows you to hide an entire country, or something. That country is Wakanda, a nation that has benefited for a thousand years or more from a vast supply of vibranium, handily delivered to them from space. Wakanda, we are told, is a hugely advanced civilization that has hidden their true power from the world and maintained an isolationist policy because they are so very advanced that they want to keep out of the affairs of others entirely. A nation so advanced that they are still ruled by an absolute monarch who, it must be pointed out, can only be replaced by being beaten in single combat. And I say monarch, but of course I mean king. No equal opportunities here, ladies. Oh, and despite this apparent long-standing tradition, and the general reverence given to tradition by the people of Wakanda, it's apparently entirely okay to abandon this and try to undo it if you just happen to dislike the person who won the combat, even if they did so legitimately. Advanced my arse. The unwelcome pretender to the throne is Michael B. Jordan's Eric Stevens, a.k.a. Killmonger. And yes, that is the stupidest name you've ever heard. A monger being a seller, a purveyor of something, of course. But rather than purveying death or war, whatever, Eric is apparently selling kill? But whoever came up with that name clearly didn't think too much about it, so nor should you. Just note that he apparently went through all sorts of military training and killed several hundred people so that he could get to King T'Challa, despite the fact that he was always able to just walk into Wakanda any time. No, none of this makes any sense. Look, over there, something shiny. Ironmonger has a bit of a beef with T'Challa because of something T'Challa's dad did to his dad. And the sins of the father are always the sins of the son in this sort of thing. But he also has to think it's a bit bad of Wakanda to have sat by in their invisible futuristic super country while hundreds of thousands of other Africans were sold into slavery. And for them to continue to pretend to be a third world country when their vast resources could help so many. But as Costermonger is a pretty bad guy, 
He claims that each scar on his body represents a kill, so his head count is at least in the several hundreds, if not thousands, and wants to atone for slavery, murder and colonisation with murder and colonisation, he must be stopped, leading to the allegedly advanced nation falling into civil war, if not overnight, then certainly no more than two or three nights. Fishmonger, to absolutely damn him with faint praise, may be the most interesting Marvel villain yet, though Michael B. Jordan is kinda, well, crap, as he was in Fantastic Four. But he had plenty of company there at least. I did like him a lot in Creed, and I've heard great things about Fruitvale Station, his first collaboration with Ryan Coogler, so I wouldn't let his performance here put you off checking that out, as I've been meaning to do myself. But I digress. Even while he undeniably has a point, and it's rather interesting to have your possibly psychopathic, certainly mass-murdering villain also happen to be, in many ways, in the right, nothing useful comes from this because this is a big dumb blockbuster and the gods of action must be satisfied. Marvel films like to think they're clever or important, but they're not. They're often very entertaining, and I have enjoyed a great many of them. But their plots, such as they are, are basic frameworks in which to hang action sequences and, sometimes, interesting or amusing character beats. Without a doubt, Black Panther contains some interesting themes, non-interventionism and the morality, or lack thereof, of not doing something to help your fellow humans when you have the technological or financial means to do so in particular, but the MCU has resolutely proved it is not the place to address these ideas, especially not when the climax of your film is a prolonged battle. One, incidentally, fought with largely close-quarter weapons, the film's characters having established a disdain for guns, despite their obvious tactical superiority. Though I'll forgive such blinkered thinking for the sake of it being something different to be bored by in an extended action set piece. I will not, however, forgive shitty CGI warvinosuses, with armour plating and aluminium foil over their horns. Come back when you're Battle Cat. <laughs> The conclusion of the clever and thoughtful part of the film is an afterthought and a pretty insultingly and insensitively handled one at that. The superlatives for Black Panther have been overwhelming and frankly bewildering, given that it's not even the top half of Marvel's output. And when I see gushing praise like, and I quote directly here, Black Panther is Marvel's first genuine masterpiece, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Where it has genuine, undeniable merit, however, is in the number of black faces both in front of and behind the camera. Being a white man, and having had all of the films ever made for me, I can at best acknowledge, but never truly comprehend, the importance to so many people of seeing so many African faces on screen in a film with so high a budget and that has been so astoundingly successful. There was a saying in the entertainment industry for many years that the only colour Hollywood cared about was green, as if naked greed was somehow nobler than naked racism. And, of course, it was nonsense. It was simply a justification for racism, with the narrative being that large films with a significantly non-white cast wouldn't or couldn't be successful. While, beyond something fresh to look at in the MCU, the runaway success of Black Panther is probably neither due to to, nor in spite of the ethnic makeup of its cast, but rather to it being a part of that money-vacuuming machine, it has nonetheless thoroughly, and, one fervently hopes, permanently discredited that ridiculous notion, and that is its true importance and probable legacy. Well, 
that and its huge success requiring writing even more characters into Infinity War. I think we're genuinely into triple digits now. As a film though, you could take it or leave it, although I'd suggest the latter. There are some positives worth mentioning though. While Chadwick Boseman is extremely bland in the extremely bland central role of the extremely bland King T'Challa, and Forrest Whitaker as much as he was in Rogue One, which is to say, wheezing and terrible, there are plenty of really quite engaging performances amongst the supporting cast, particularly a hammy Andy Serkis, Winston Duke as a noble and honourable tribal chief, Danai Gurira as warrior and general Okoye, and Letitia Wright, who seems to have captured the audience's attention and imagination as T'Challa's sister Shuri. Um, rising star, particularly due to Get Out, Daniel Kaluuya, fares less well though, and I absolutely don't buy him as any sort of warrior. I also don't buy some of the special effects, including the waterfall scene, which is unforgivably ropey in a film with a budget of $210 million. Nor do I buy the war rhinos. It would also be nice if more than two or three of the actors were actually African and not just of African descent, or indeed if a single frame had been shot in Africa. To sum it up, acting aside, different worlds and places, great. Different faces, really, really great. Everything else, absolute horse. Also, war rhinos, <laughs> do one. I quite like Black Panther. I can see where we come from the CG, and certainly there's, there's obvious niggles with um, the political structure of Wakanda and basically all its backstory. And to be honest, even the fact that it's supposedly so advanced, when really in the rest of the Avengers films and whatnot, they're happily to pull out any technology that does whatever they like at any point anyway. Um, so it, it didn't really seem more advanced, it just seemed a little bit more blue. <laughs> that seemed to be the main difference. I think what I liked from this is that for a lot of it, it's a film where most of the conflict in it is actually hand-to-hand stuff, and a lot of it isn't actually CG. Uh, there's at least some of it, this the silly, ultimately silly challenge scenes between the prospective kings and such like. It, is, it does actually feel like a proper fight. You can see some of that coming over from the uh, Creed films. That's fair, uh, yes. There, there are, it certainly doesn't feel like a big bunch mm. of pixels lumping um, another big yeah. bunch of pixels it is human on human combat and that certainly is refreshing I, I will very much grant you that 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 was a nice change yeah i do wish as i've said this before a number of times i wish that had been the end rather than the cg battles at the, that was the actual end of the film and the conclusion i think that would have been a bit more human would have made a bit more sense but um the rest of it is fine like, like you say it's nice to see a villain who you can actually have some sort of Maybe not agreement with, but you can at least see where he's coming from. Yes, the same he way has, a, like, has a point. Uh, yeah, same as sort of X Men's Magneto. It's a real shame they decided to undercut it by keep calling him Killmonger, uh, <laughs> because it's very difficult to take anyone's <laughs> credo particularly seriously if they go around calling themselves Killmonger. Just, just undercuts it that little bit. But in the main, I, I found it was quite enjoyable. I think. Uh, always, I was also quite annoyed by the bait and switch of the first act uh, villain. Um, much as I loved Andy Serkis's role. Who, who was clearly told just go and chew the scenery, yes, and he exactly. did, and he's... he found it delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so he's he's great, and um, I, I could happily watch a, a whole film where he's just tied to a seat, uh, string, singing "Baby Don't Hurt Me." Yes, <laughs> 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 yeah, really funny performance, but uh, it, he feels like he's from another film, and so when he's written out at the end of the first act, and um, yeah, it focuses back to the, the main the main villain, it 
it's a bit of a tonal shift that is struggles to kind of properly come back from. Killmonger may have more a more valid point to be filmed, but he's a much less interesting guy. Uh, but the rest of it, I, I didn't mind it. The, the CG's not as good as it should be, given the money, but I, I gave it a pass, I guess. It's like, it's it's functional enough that I say it should be better, but sell V. And I enjoyed it probably as much as I've enjoyed any of the non, sorry, of the more serious Marvel films, apart from perhaps the Iron Man uh, franchise. It, I obviously much prefer the, the slightly offbeat, wackier ones like your, uh, well, obviously Thor, Ragnarok, mm. and Doctor Strange, and these, some of these other kind of bit more off-the-wall ones are, are much more my street. Uh, the ones where they're actually trying to make serious points, as we discussed in the points, and as you mentioned earlier, the, the characters just simply aren't strong enough to actually hold any kind of morality to them. Um, this is a, uh, as far as these modern-day fairy tales go, they just don't have the, the, the requisite humanity to really do anything particularly deep or meaningful like political structures or anything like that is mm-hmm. it's just way beyond them i mean the most simplistic moral tales i can i can probably get behind putting in this kind of format anything else and a bit of a reach no, um, they don't but, have the depth for the they mm-hmm. don't, don't really do nuance yeah i'm certainly not the person to be talking about inclusivity over this kind of thing but i did hear i think it was i'm pretty sure it was daniel kalua on uh i overheard on the Graham Norton show, I think, and he made a pretty convincing case for it, and so yeah, that's that's all cool. Happy to see that happening. Um, in terms of the acting performances, I think the women did much better than the men. Um, uh, definitely. Yeah, they're far more interesting characters, far more vibrantly portrayed. But overall, it does well enough. Um, it's certainly not a masterpiece. Um, I thought it was an acceptably entertaining film for two hours, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I would, I would. I would happily grant it like a 4 out of 5 or something like that, but anyone who's running around saying it is the best film ever, or the best film that Marvel's done, or, well, anything more than a, a pretty decent Marvel Comics outing, yeah, I'd probably overkill a bit. But uh, yeah, I, I, would, I would recommend it. If you have enjoyed Marvel films previously, you know what you're getting into, and this delivers exactly what you'd expect, more or less. So yeah, take that for what it's worth. Yeah, um, if I were to give it a ranking myself, as you've mentioned a score there, for me it's a 2 out of 5 on a par mm. with the first Captain America film. I just was not engaged by this at all. And Harsh. I mean, there were some sort of interesting character beats in some of the scenes with, the, in particular, the General Okoya, and then even the bits with Winston Duke's character, the yeah. the head of the other tribe. Um, <laughs> some really funny moments there, and yeah. also um, showing that he at least is willing to obey the traditions that have been in place in Wakanda just because it's um, he sees an opportunity for himself he's not going to take it and that's sort of interesting but then it just switched into some other really dull action scene like that the action sequence in particular in South Korea that would have been okay at a tenth of the length it just seemed to go on forever and it just wasn't interesting the casino bit's fine the chase afterwards not so much yeah. exactly yeah the casino bit was interesting because again because it was it was less effects heavy it yes, was yes. Um, just actors fighting hand to hand more or less I mean, they had weapons but it was close range stuff spears mm. and such like and it was interesting even if it did look awfully like the casino in not Casino Royale, uh, Skyfall, I think. Anyway, yes, it, it reminded me of that, but it was an interesting fight. And then afterward, it's like, oh, good, they're going to have some CGI thing now because 
Wakanda has some sort of more magic to show off. Yay. Yeah. I just <laughs> could not bring myself to care about it. I mean, you make a fair point too about the the hand-to-hand combat, and that really was what I was enjoying more. That final climactic action sequence, because while there's a... And really, I can't get over how much I dislike the war rhinos. They're just stupid and <laughs> really badly done too. But uh, that sequence at the end... The, because of the hand-to-hand combat, it was interesting. It looked different from most other Marvel stuff, and because it wasn't just pixels hitting each other, like at the end of Civil War, for instance. But it just seemed to go on for two and a half days. It did a little restraint. I had been quite looking forward to it. Um, I just don't think it's very good. But really, for me, the, the more important thing is the fact that with so many non-white faces, it's been so successful. Yeah. So... As I say, hopefully it's just put such daft notions to bed that um, such films can't make money. And also, just if you're a black person living in Western countries, in particular the USA, that to to see yourself in many ways represented in a way that hasn't been that common, certainly not in a... I mean, obviously there have been many, many all-black films, even when crazy people like George Lucas seem to think they're the first with Red Tails. Hmm. George Lucas has gone a bit mental in the last 10 years, I think, on this sort of scale, that there are... Is there really just two white people in this film? I mean, beyond Beyond minor people like the people in the the museum at the start. There's just there's Andy Serkis and there's Martin Freeman, who really ought not to be there. I'm not sure why Martin (laughs) Freeman's in that film at all, but... Yeah, but um, I remember uh, Brian Coogler having some sort of quote, I think it was Martin Freeman saying, actually, that when he directed a scene between... Uh, yeah, the interrogation scene between Serxis and uh, Tim from The Office, then he was saying this is the first scene I've had with two white actors in it, which is quite something to think about, <laughs> given the normal output of Hollywood. Well, it's always been a slightly fatuous arg- argument, given the amount of money that uh, Nollywood and whatnot brings in. It's a, yeah, that's a, a, a puzzling uh, attitude to have, but you know, hopefully this puts a nail in that coffin. Yeah, let's hope so. And, and going forward, it's like, then you you don't even have to like think about casting people for gender or ethnicity or something. You simply cast them for what's appropriate for the story and the setting, and you don't have to think about it anymore. The success of Black Panther will hopefully lead to that. You know, it just stops being a talking point. It's like here's a film, and they happen to be in this case, I don't know, South Asian because that seems to fit the story, and nobody has to to think about people playing inappropriate ethnicities or that people, that everything's really, really white or something, you know, that hopefully can just go away for a while after that. <laughs> Permanently, hopefully. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So, um, we're going to move on to, actually, a very, very white film, but uh, <laughs> that's neither condemnation nor praise, it simply is what it is. And, Scott, you'd like to tell us about Ladybird, please? Life in Sleepy Sacramento, California. California seems like a dull series of disappointments to teenage Christine Ladybird McPherson, played by Sorsha Ronan. How how do you pronounce that? That is not how Saoirse. those words. Sersha to rhyme with inertia. Sersha Ronan, who whose name is not spelt like that, who would very much like to leave her Christian school and escape to the faster pace of an East Coast university. Unfortunately, this seems to be a dream that's not compatible with either her family's current economic states or indeed her current grades. This leads Lady Bird into a seemingly continual argument with her mother, Laurie Metcalf, about 
pretty much every aspect in her life in a way that eventually edges over the usual teenage awkwardness into being quite openly disrespectful and ungrateful towards her family. At school, her growing pains continue when she finds out that her idyllic theatre-loving boyfriend is gay, but she soon meets Kyle, played by Timothy Chalamet, the apparently cool local musician with a fine line in conspiracy theories and other lies about his personal life, and before long, Lady Bird is projecting an entirely different view of her family's situation and moving in a different social circle than her previous best friend. When, with a sad inevitability, this comes crashing down, she's left alone, but not for long, as this is one of those rare films where school kids are reasonable people and not reenacting The Lord of the Flies. And well, so it goes, providing a slice of maybe a year of the life of Ladybird with a constant dry wit, very good, entirely believable performances and characters, and a coming-of-age story that's not based around a dramatic, singular trauma, but the much more mundane, tiny slings and arrows that graze us, until the point we think we've grained enough scar tissue to call ourselves an adult. Now, I'm unreliably informed by the internet that this is, of the year's Oscar contenders, uh, the one with the biggest gulf between critical acclaim and audience acceptance, I suppose I can see why it is a very dry sense of humour across the piece that is perhaps not to everyone's taste. I, however, am British, and we like our humour so dry that it may not technically be humour anymore, so it's very much to my taste. Uh, As mentioned earlier, it's great to see a teen drama that has people acting like, well, people, and not a school that's a set of cliques on the verge of going battle royale on each other, and even as the characters' other media has trained us to expect to be horrible people, such as the pretty rich kid Ladybird becomes friend with, turn out just to be normal, not pointlessly obnoxious human beings, just trying to get on with life. You could, I suppose, argue there's not a lot of narrative meatiness to get your teeth into. This is a character study in the main, and almost exclusively in fact, but when it's doing it this well, this charmingly, I don't think there's any great reason to think of that as a negative. Likewise, there's a few scenes that do a great deal to inform character, but otherwise feel like they belong to a different story, such as Lady Bird's mother counselling the old theatre teacher, uh, which is a little odd, and in the overarching scheme of things, but they're great little scenes in their own merit, and what sort of monster would complain about that? It also contains my favourite bit part character of the year, the American football coach drafted in to enthusiastically teach the school theatre product- production by his old playbook. Very enjoyable, uh, well worth watching, even despite the complete lack of exploding robots. <laughs> I can't disagree with any of your points about structure, about believability, etc., all of those things. But you are a Except monster, so you probably... I am a monster because I do not like this film. <laughs> Similar to what you're saying, so I'd say much of the action seems believable. It's perfectly plausible, um, really, that most of this could happen to any teenager. That doesn't make any of it interesting. Not that it has to be. I've seen lots of slice-of-life films where nothing necessarily interesting is happening, but I'm really engaged with it. Unfortunately, it wasn't the, the case here. It's good that there are no real drama bombs, nothing far-fetched or climactic. But neither the film nor the characters is very interesting. It is a thing. It is there. I care not a jot. <laughs> uh, but the biggest problem is the main character, Saoirse Ronan's Lady Bird herself, because Lady Bird is an arsehole. I mean, she's not, she's not malicious, she's not an enormous or an extraordinary arsehole. She's not evil, but she's an arsehole nonetheless. <laughs> and actually, for me, the big issue is the opening. At 3 minutes and 15 seconds, the protagonist throws herself out of a moving car, apparently because she was getting a bit irritated by her mum. Yes. And she doesn't die. This disappointed and angered me, and the film never recovered from this. I then had to spend the next 90 minutes being expected to care about this colossal No thanks, drive through. 
this one doesn't get a recommendation from me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right. She's she's not sympathetic in a lot of respects. Yeah, I've forgotten quite how silly that opening sequence was, but you're, yeah. <laughs> I don't really like the things you're saying to me, Mum. I'm going to throw myself out of a car. You're a moron. You deserve to die for that. <laughs> I'll throw myself out of the car. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, no, I... I highlight it it's uh it's very sedately paced and uh let's say kind of there's enough verity in it for me to kind of get on board with it i eventually kind of warmed to the characters she's just she's just just being a teenager i seen that that seems to let, let people get away with a lot of awful lot of just being a dick but um, yeah uh, it didn't bother me as much as uh, as you clearly so i i kind of let her go with a little bit more uh, leniency from her car diving escapades and was more on board with the rest of it yeah, I I still like it. So there. <laughs> so uh, I guess next up on our chopping block is Monsieur Garland's Annihilation. Yes. Annihilation, if you must. I'm not sure why it's French, but okay. He's in the bio. So... He's helping her look for her daddy. <laughs> Nobody in this film roundhouse kicks anybody. That's what's missing from it. <laughs> It's a great disappointment in a number of regards, yes. So, what do you do if a film like, say, Arrival has, however unexpectedly, shown you that there is a market, modest perhaps, but a $200 million return on a budget of $47 million isn't chump change, for thoughtful, intelligent, deliberately paced and original science fiction with a female lead? And that your new property, which has all of these attributes, happens to come from the writer and director of arguably one of the best science fiction films of the past decade to boot. Well, if you're Paramount Pictures, obviously you give it a limited release in US cinemas and dump it onto Netflix everywhere else, pretty much ensuring a poor box office performance and allowing your pathetically risk-averse executives, who incidentally threw a tantrum after producer Scott Rudin, who had final cut overruled their wrong-headed request for change, to say, see, I told you so, and further helped to ensure the self-fulfilling prophecy of mainstream cinema audiences being considered too dumb for even mildly intellectual cinema. <laughs> In what may become a common refrain from me, studio executives are wallopers, and I very much mean that in the Scottish slang sense, not the standard English. And if you're unfamiliar with that, I direct you to Urban Dictionary. Somewhere on the south coast of the US, played here, interestingly, by both Windsor and Norfolk in England, a projectile from space makes landfall and begins to affect the environment. A slowly expanding bubble, dubbed the Shimmer, like a rainbow oil slick in the air, grows around the epicentre and begins to affect the nature of the world within. Various military teams have been sent in to investigate, but no one has ever returned. No one, that is, until Kane, Oscar Isaac, returns to his wife Lena, Natalie Portman, after having been missing for a year, but with no clear idea of how he got there, or indeed, who either he or Lena is. Kane soon becomes very ill, and the ambulance carrying him to the hospital is intercepted by an army unit, and Kane and Lena are taken to the army's Area X facility, where Kane is isolated and Lena interrogated. While there, Lena meets Jennifer Jason Lee's Dr. Ventress, who, in a very Star Trek The Next Generation sort of way, is a psychologist with a surprising amount of authority and seniority. 
With Cain likely to die and feeling guilt about something she did to hurt him, Lena, a cell biologist, volunteers to join the investigation party that Dr. Ventress is going to lead into the Shimmer, a group which also contains Tessa Thompson's physicist Josie, anthropologist Cass, Tuva Novotny, and paramedic Anya, not Michelle Rodriguez, though the dress, belligerence and general temperament would make you think otherwise. In the Shimmer, they discover what befell the previous groups that entered, and attempt to ascertain the nature of the alien life forms, if such they are, that have invaded the Earth, while trying to keep a grip on their sanity. As we know from the film's structure that no one else makes it out, with sole survivor Natalie Portman telling the tale in flashback while being interrogated by a belligerent Benedict Wong, we are, alas, robbed of any suspense in terms of character survival. I wanted very much to like Annihilation more than I did. I really appreciated the atmosphere and the slow building of tension and the unravelling of story and character. This last in particular was very welcome, trusting in the audience's patience instead of front-loading character attributes so that we could pigeonhole each cast member from the start. There's also some fantastic, and fantastically interesting, design work on display. From crystal structures resembling trees and gory people-based wall displays to unusual animals and highly coloured lichens. At times the effects are a little ropey, but with its relatively low budget I take no issue with that. And indeed some of its low budget effects, like the aforementioned lichens and various plants and flowers, are both effective and visually striking. And one creature in particular, in both its visual and sound design, may be one of the creepiest things I have ever seen. But it kept getting in its own way, like when Tessa Thompson's physicist declares that the shimmer is refracting the DNA, Hmm. which is totally not a thing. (laughs) It would have been far better not to try to create some explanation and leave it at the shimmer is doing to the world what cancer does to cells in the body, the references to cancer being a recurring theme throughout. That would have been more than sufficient. And then there's not Michelle Rodriguez, for some reason refusing to believe the evidence of her own eyes and then going crazy, feeling very much like she'd been grafted in from another film entirely. And there's Natalie Portman. Well, she's just not a great actor, is she? She doesn't have a lot of range or nuance. Though, to be fair, she's serviceable in this, and does a pretty decent job of shouldering the weight placed upon her, so it's definitely one of her stronger performances. Jennifer Jason Lee may have taken her morose role a little too far, but she's really solid. And if anything, Tessa Thompson is too successful at being the meek, timid and quiet one. And not Michelle Rodriguez is, in all honesty, considerably less distracting a presence that, than the real Rod- Michelle Rodriguez would have been. And even as I say these things, I'm aware that my negative points don't seem particularly strong. So perhaps with a few days distance now from it, I think I appreciate Annihilation more. Certainly I'd be willing to watch it again somewhere down the road, and I absolutely would like to see more of this type of material, and preferably with the possibility of doing so on a cinema screen. Recommended. Yeah, Annihilation got its hooks into me. I quite enjoyed it. I don't think I'll be able to talk you around on this the way that I might have done the news or something, but um, I, I I probably had more affection for Gina Rodriguez because I've been watching Jane the Virgin in my life, and uh, yeah, she's, she's a really likeable character in that, and it's quite a difference to see her in this where she really isn't. And uh, yeah, it's not our strongest uh, performance, uh, but I think overall the cast does pretty well, um, holding interest in what is at times a very 
languidly paced uh, film. This is glacial at points, uh, but it never felt it never felt like it was trying my patience. It, it felt it was always enough there it, to keep me on. It never felt glacial to me, but it's certainly slow burn. Mm-hmm. But I I appreciate I like that sort of slow burn sci fi. I mean, I guess it's technically more sci fi horror, but I I do like that sort of mm-hmm. that slow pace. I mean, it's a hard thing to pitch right. It is so easy for it to be you know, glacial and to lose interest. But for me, it, it worked. It, and it built just nicely. And then you'd have those few moments, like that creature yeah. I talked about. And, just, and that's properly creepy. And it just, it, you get that high point, then it goes back to more gentle pacing for yeah. a while. And it, it, it worked well like that. Yeah, it, it's really, I think, well structured in that regard, even though it's the way that the whole or the shimmer is set up it means you can kind of jump about things pretty much as much as much as you like but i, I do think it mostly worked yeah lots of creepy bits like some nice bits thrown and kind of flashback to the uh, previous parties uh videos which were not not the nicest home video fair you can imagine uh boss <laughs> isaac's uh, yeah it's a as you i think you're right in saying that it, it could have done without attempting to give a scientific explanation for what's going on I don't think this is in any way a hard science film. It didn't need to no, do this. No, it's not. It's closer to a horror movie than it is a science fiction film. Exactly, yeah. So the, the explanations, they, they never sound in any way convincing. They all just yeah. sound a bit hand-wavy and, so. or pseudoscience, and it's it doesn't fit. And it's like, they really should have stuck with, well, this is all a bit yeah, weird, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> and that would have been yeah. more than enough. Um, I've heard people compare this to... Under the skin, apparently in a positive way. I don't know what that means because under the skin's terrible. <laughs> I've still not brought myself to watch Under the Skin after you so vehemently warned me off of it many years ago. So. Lots of people like it. I can see where they're coming from because this is a very similar kind of pace to it and has a very similar sort of way of narrative where it feels like it's saying something without really saying anything. There's a lot of things I think you could project onto Annihilation. I think if they, if you wanted to start an- analysing films in the sort of way that we don't in this podcast, you could probably have a field day with this. There's a lot of things you could probably put onto this film. Um, but in terms of it just being an enjoyable experience, it, I th- it certainly got its hooks into me and kept me engaged all the way throughout it. I was uh, quite entranced by its uh, unfolding just hints of weirdness uh, mm. in the you know, I, th- I think all that stuff just works pretty well. In a, in a very slight defence of studio execs, I can see why they might be second thoughts about this. It's clearly not a mass market film. I think putting this out into a main cinema probably would have surprised them with the amount of people that would go to it because I think it's got enough of a draw and I think it would have got enough word of mouth that people would have liked it. I mean, I, I guess they might have been spooked by Blade Runner 2049 because if you think that's a slow burn and weren't particularly enthused by it and that didn't get a lot of great word of mouth... Mm-hmm. then I can see why you might be quite convinced that it's exactly the same thing, but worse would happen to Annihilation. <laughs> uh, so I can at least see a little bit of where they're coming from. But yeah, I do feel like I was robbed of getting a chance to see this in a cinema uh, because I would have loved to have seen this on a big screen because there's yeah, points I, of it where it is beautiful. There's such interesting design. I would, yeah, I really wanted to see this in the big screen. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, as I said, there's some sort of ropey stuff particularly like the the crocodile you see early on mm. and and it's budget and that's okay because even really expensive films struggle to make the movement of animals look realistic yeah. look at the war rhinos <laughs> which is a bone i am not going to let all let go of anytime soon <laughs> but the yeah just when they 
like the approach to lighthouse which is the epicenter yeah and there are, there are these crystal trees which are it's, growing from the sand which is of course it's what glass is made of sort of yeah. glass trees and it's so amazing and yeah. they do the simple things like the like the flowers and the colored lichens and stuff and it's just it's yeah. so it's so simple yet so instantly otherworldly because you know it's like it's of the earth but in some way corrupted yeah and it, it's really really effective and there's some really interesting design in here it's that sort of thing when you look at it as a first pass you kind of go oh that, that makes sense and then you look at it a bit closely and oh well, actually no it really doesn't and uh yeah that, that's kind of unsettling in a in a way yeah. seeing the familiar sort of slightly corrupted is uh yeah, yeah. quite quite effective yeah i'm um, really as i said i think that now a few days hence i actually think i, I enjoyed it considerably more than i thought i did but i know it's strange to say but <laughs> the the bits that annoyed me while I was watching it, I barely remember now. I remember very strongly all the other bits. I think um, something that might actually benefit from a, another watch and maybe something as simple as my mood that the those things I liked less took me out of it a bit. Yeah. There's so much to like here and there's, I mean, it's not going to, be, it's certainly not a film for everybody, mm. but just, I just want more films like this because it's not like most of the stuff you get in cinemas. Yes. At least on a bigger scale. Else it's not art house cinema. And it's just, it's so disappointing that, particularly in Europe, I actually would have thought that Europe would have had yeah, a yeah. much better, would be a more obvious audience for it in the cinema. Yeah. Um, that it got stuck in Netflix here and only got a um, cinema release in the United States, Canada and China. Yeah. So strange. Weird. weird. Yeah, and it's when it's why I particularly mentioned Paramount too, though, because Arrival was a Paramount film. This <laughs> is a Paramount film, so like, and Arrival was only two years ago, and, and it's like, what happened in those two years? Apparently, there has actually been a change at the top in Paramount, which may be a, a part of it. But um, you like, yeah, you you as a studio know, actually, yeah, there is a market for this. Yeah, and it gets. $200 million on a budget of under $50 million. That's quite a good return. It's not Marvel money, but nobody makes Marvel money apart from Marvel, really. Yeah. Disney make all that money nowadays. They seem to own the market and the biggest things, but what kind of business wants to throw away a profit of over $100 million? Yeah, baffling. baffling. Uh, yeah, I definitely recommend it. If you don't have Netflix in Europe, then it's definitely worth giving up the month's free trial just to watch this and nothing else. Uh, yeah, really yeah, good film. Absolutely. Probably my favourite we'll talk about today. And uh, yeah, highly recommended. Yeah. It's my second favourite, actually, we'll talk about it today because there's one film that really just blew me away. But this is, it's really rewarding. And again, and this one has actually... You know, I'm going to say this because it's driving me crazy, but the number of times I've heard women referred to as a minority recently is driving me crazy. Because mm-hmm. women are, in fact, the majority learn to do math, you idiots. But uh, <laughs> but this is a, a largely female cast, but without having sort of trumpeted it, which is nice too. Yeah. It's like, um, there's, there's Benedict Wong and Oscar Isaac in it, basically the only significant male characters and a smaller role for Natalie Portman's colleague. But other than that, it's... Um, yeah, Benedict Wong's barely a character. He's a plot device. It's like, yeah, and then yeah, what happened? Yes. Oh, well, then what happened was... <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, but other than that, it's an all largely a female cast and all the significant 
time and roles are taken by women and um but it doesn't it's not really saying that it's not like a women's film or something this is just having to be a sci-fi film with some women in it and that's great too it's like without having to make it a thing and that's what i want mm. and i know i'm sort of undercut my own point by making it a thing <laughs> but for so long like that sort of thing didn't exist yeah that, that was remarkable it's like this yeah more stuff like this you know like quality film that just happens to have women in it and you think hopefully you get more of these and you get to the point where you just have films again you know yeah. well, well, so you never really did but you just have films and like the makeup of the cast is either inconsequential or at least just relevant to the setting and not with anything else in mind yeah okay scott i tonya tell us about that if you would be so kind i tonya you tonya we all tonya um, yeah, it's a bit hard to know how much to go into the, gen- the generalities of I, Tonya. After all the incident that brought her to infamy, still seems relatively well-remembered, but I realised that, aside from that nonsense, I didn't really know all that much about Tonya Harding's life. The problem is, as this film is a biopic in much the same way that Confessions of the Dangerous Mind, uh, I trust <laughs> this film as an unvarnished source of truth, as far as I would throw something that I couldn't lift. So, the basics. As a youngster, Tonya, played in the main by Margot Robbie, is encouraged to get into figure skating by her mother, Lavonia, played by Alison Janey, who provides the perfect opportunity to break out the word Harridan, if not outright <laughs> child abuse. Uh, allegedly slash disputedly, uh, this film's not too keen on taking one position on any fact of the matter, when instead it can be used as a chisel on the fourth wall. The kid has talent and a fierce training regime that sees her produce excellent routines at events, but is routinely discriminated against by judges whose decisions are based more on her working class and upbringing, her homemade outfits and brash manner than her skills on the ice. So, Tonya's relationship with her mother flares into fights quite frequently, no more so than when she meets and soon marries Jeff Galuli, played by Sebastian Stan, to escape her house, but this relationship soon grows as abusive as any other in her, her life. Again, allegedly. Uh, the real crux of the matter comes during the training for the 1994 Winter Olympics when, following a death threat that Jeff suspects came from Tonya's main rival, Nancy Kerrigan, he asks his friend, Sean Eckhart, played by Paul Walter Hauser, to retaliate in kind. Unfortunately, Sean's a straight-up liability to himself and anyone around him, so of course he instead hires two of the world's least competent goons to attack Nancy, badly injuring her knee. These criminal inverse masterminds are quickly arrested and the plot soon unravels, with Tonya's career being the collateral damage of associating with these titans of ineptitude. Now, I, Tonya, shoes closer to being a mockumentary than a documentary, and is played for laughs rather than truth. And on that level, it works. It's a greatly entertaining film, with strong comic performances from the cast, and are also, uh, also a cast that are more than talented enough to carry the dramatic moments too, and sensibly it restricts the bulk of its fourth-wall-breaking moments to the comedy portions. I'm glad that some of these performances were recognised at the Oscars and Alison Janey's ghastly but entirely relatable mother is deserve- a deserving winner and it's in the type of film that I'd not normally expect to get near the awards circuit. And, well, in truth, I don't think I've got an awful lot else to say about it, Tonya, other than it amused me. Uh, but it left me with a vague sense of this being somewhat exploitative and mocking someone who had not had the easiest life in the main through no fault of her own. There's a less generous interpretation of of this as being a film that mocks the working class for aspiring to something better than the circumstances they find themselves born to, which, with a small amount of beer bending, I could probably get behind. But that wouldn't change the fact that it's a funny comedy, so, well, I suppose that's enough for it to serve its prime function. It's worth watching on that basis, but I wouldn't get a lot more out of it than that. 
So this seems to be another film that you and I, um, which is quite unusual for it to happen, particularly with so many films, but mm. uh, another film we have had quite different experiences with. Now, I'm going to get to one of your points later about the how well this is remembered, because I thought it wasn't. But yeah, I, Tonya, is marketed as a comedy. You seem to think it was funny. Um I mean, that's fair enough, I guess. I mean, all of that child abuse, domestic abuse, homophobia, attempted murder and grievous bodily harm add up to a laugh riot, do they not? We open with a trying so hard to be jaunty and wacky. Based on irony-free, wildly contradictory, totally true interviews with Tonya Harding and Jeff Gillilicard that is an even bigger than usual warning that bullshit lies ahead than a typical based on a true story opening for such a film. And it is, of course, impossible to read that statement and not hear totally true in one's own head in a voice dripping with sarcasm. This isn't helped by having heard an interview with Alison Janney in which she addressed the scene in which she tells Tonya that she had to be a monstrous mother in order to make Tonya champion, and how she tried to channel the character and generate an emotional truth or some such nonsense, which is just a flowery way of saying made it up, or pulled it out of her arse. Tonally, it's pretty awful. A film that doesn't really know what it is. For me, a lot of that has to do with the large number of decidedly unfunny topics that I mentioned earlier. While on occasion I did laugh, I generally felt uncomfortable while so doing. And then there are some characters which, while being dumber than a bag of hammers in real life, as the film demonstrates in archive footage at the end, seem to have been dropped in for another film entirely. And events shift from a battered wife fearing for her life to a deluded slob eating snacks, naked, in a car while he talks about his international covert ops and his training in mind control and career. Tonya also claims at one point that she is the second most famous person in the world after the President of the United States of America. I think Tonya has problems. But... Talking of said infamy, I wonder how famous this event really is, particularly in USA, because here, well, I thought the quantity is not at all. And within the world and viewership or fandom of figure skating, I imagine it fairly widely known. But even then, I could question that, as this happened around the same time that a disturbed Steffi Graf fan stabbed Monica Selish in the back at a tournament in Hamburg. And I have a good memory love tennis and barely remember that. I had to look up the where, when and exactly what happened. So when it comes to the portion of the film where the characters begin to talk about the incident, and it being what we're all here for, I wonder just how many people a quarter of a century later know what they're talking about, or in fact wondered who Tonya when the film was released. I can remember this happening, and remember the names Tonya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan, it could have told you who did what to whom. But perhaps it remained more in the public consciousness in the US. For all that, I still enjoyed it reasonably well, and Margot Robbie's performance in particular is good. For me, the jury's still out in Sebastian stand here, and his ludicrously bad prosthetic beard is what he ought to be apologising for, not his moustache. <laughs> but the biggest problem is that the film lacks even a single likeable character. Tony herself merits a lot of sympathy, certainly, but she's not a particularly pleasant person, and everyone else is, wor- is worse. Yeah, that is all I have to say about that. Yeah, I liked it. 
Yes, and and I did, but with <laughs> big reservations. Uh, I agree. You're right. It's, I mean, it is at best a black comedy about a lot of this stuff. Uh, the subjects in themselves are not funny, but I'm a firm believer that you can have funny things about things that are not inherently a funny themselves oh i do believe um, that too but i just don't yeah. think this film was was yeah, it and if you don't find this film funny then there is very little no there's not very little there's absolutely nothing else <laughs> in there for you to, to mine from it it's purely a comedy and if you're not finding that there's anything in there that you don't find the characters in some way relatable or at least you can at least laugh at them then you're not going to get an awful lot from it and i think that a lot of this is perhaps my issue with i tonya that i would i would bring up it it does feel like a lot of this is laughing at someone rather than laughing with them you know there's very little sympathy for a character here at all who was by no means blameless in all of this but certainly does not did not deserve the life that, that became of her and um, yeah a lot of pretty nasty stuff happened to yeah. her yeah, and it's not most of that was not particularly her fault, and I think she had a rough break of it, and is not in a particularly great life after this for understandable reasons. And yeah, it just seems a little bit exploitative uh, on that basis. Um, I don't know how in terms of popularity of the incident I don't, or remembrance of the incident. I'm not sure I remembered it pretty clearly, but um, I believe I read somewhere that when Margot Robbie got the role, she didn't know that it was based on a real character or something like that. So you know, <laughs> you can split that however you like. Ah, no, Margot Robbie may not have even been bored when this happened. That so. is true. Yes, it <laughs> probably has a good excuse in that regard. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's probably worth watching if you think if you watch the trailer and think that's the sort of thing you could get behind, then you know, give it a go. It's it pretty much continues in that vein for the entirety of it. Yeah, not perfect, um, but um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it well enough to recommend it to people. Yeah, I think that there are. I mean, particularly just with Margot Robbie and Alison Janney, those two performances alone probably merit worth, yeah. um, merit worth, <laughs> um, merit looking it up at some point. It's just, it's just, I had so I have so many caveats about this film that um, I just couldn't yeah. like wholeheartedly recommend it. What you're saying too about the character, because those horrible things happen. She's absolutely a sympathetic character, but she's just she's not likable. No. She's not a particularly nice person. I mean, I mean that's okay if you you don't have to have a likable person as the main person in your film. But there's nobody else likable either, which is a bit of a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, I mean I know it's played for jokes, and amazingly, this person was is deluded in real life. But the um, the bodyguard character though, and the hmm. the actual two hitmen, they just they're farcical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the real irony is that they were that idiotic and useless in real life, <laughs> yeah. but. They just don't seem to fit. Well, I don't think there's a film you could fit those people in reasonably, <laughs> um, other than a out and out farce. Yeah, it's so strange too. It's, you could almost think you'd imagined it because it's so fleeting. But he really is. He's in the front seat of a car next to Sebastian Stan talking. Then suddenly he's in the back seat eating a bag of um, crisps or Cheetos or something, covered in food, naked, covered in food. Talking about how he was worked in mind control in Korea. I was like, have I, am I awake? I've just gone, <laughs> slept into some sort of fever dream brought on by my chronic insomnia. I mean, what? <laughs> it's so strange. It just doesn't, it really does feel like it's dropped in from another film entirely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but enough of that. If you don't find that woman fantastic, perhaps you'll find 
This Woman Fantastic in a film called A Fantastic Woman, or on the Her Fantastica. Yes. What a linking device, Scott. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, Chilean film Una Mujer Fantastica, A Fantastic Woman, as Scott says. Then, um, winner of the Best Foreign Language Film at this year's Oscars. After a hard day at work and misplacing a birthday gift, a man goes to a restaurant in Santiago to meet his partner for a meal to celebrate her birthday. He, Orlando, Francisco Reyes, is 57. His partner, Marina, Daniela Vega, is probably half his age. Otherwise, there ought to be nothing remarkable at this couple. They seem happy and loving, at least as much as one can tell in the few minutes we spend with them. But when Orlando wakes in the middle of the night in distress and dies in hospital an hour and a half later, we soon see just how not unremarkable and normal things are going to be. Forced to wait outside the treatment room while the medics attend to Orlando, Marina is framed in a corridor with a conspicuous sign on the wall which reads Dirty Area, a very pointed indication of how the world will treat Marina over the course of the film. And why? Because Marina is a trans woman is why. She is treated like a criminal, forced to use her dead name, humiliated, demeaned and embarrassed by a police detective who claims she's trying to help her, described as a thing and a chimera, forced out of the home she had just moved into with Orlando, attacked and tormented, and, perhaps most cruelly given the events of the film, denied the basic human decency of being allowed to say goodbye to the person she loved. And all because she doesn't fit neatly into any of the slots available in the worldview of these narrow-minded dushkinus. Pretty harrowing. Trans actress Daniela Vega is fantastic as Marina. A powerful, compassionate, tender and above all dignified performance. And, I mean this in a potentially very literal sense, a brave one given how exposed this role has made her. I use the word dignified, and I think that's a good word to sum up the character too. The litany of indignities and abuses which Marina faces is mind-boggling, but only too easy to believe rings true for many trans people. While she has moments of both despair and outrage, in the end she maintains a level of dignity far beyond what I suspect many of us could muster. I have strong suspicions that were I in her place I'd have been arrested for assault or murder by the end of the tale but a dignity that doesn't feel difficult to conceive of in the real world. Sebastian Lelio's direction is assured, and his obvious yet apt use of mirrors throughout is the perfect device to examine how Marina sees herself and how she is seen by the world. Though his most important contribution is in the excellent script, which Lelio co-wrote with Gonzalo Massa. While the standout acting performance is clearly Vegas, there's strong support from Luis Nieco as Gabo, Orlando's brother and the one family member who attempts to accept Marina, half-arsed and pathetic as that attempt may be, and Alina Kuppenheim as Orlando's ex-wife Sonia, Nicolas Saavedra as his son Bruno, and Ampera Noguera as the police detective who, together, are three of the most loathsome and despicable characters you could imagine seeing. I thoroughly recommend this film, difficult to watch as it can certainly be. I perhaps, though, suggest taking some blood pressure medication before beginning your viewing. Your circulatory system will thank you if you, like me, end up screaming four-letter epithets at 95% of the characters 95% of the time. 
Yes, um, I can't. I'm not sure I can judge this film fairly because my Spanish isn't good enough to watch this uh, without the subtitles. And for whatever reason, the copy I quote unquote inquired was uh, <laughs> had severe difficulties keeping subtitles in sync. It was, it was an absolute pain to watch this film. And I think I might have come across my enjoyment levels of it because this film just kind of bounced off me. Um, but I don't really disagree with anything you're saying. There's certainly there some really powerful performances in here, and it's uh absolutely infuriating what this woman goes through but it got points towards the end of it where it just feels like so much negativity has been shown that it kind of got to the point where it hit my limits of the amount of frustration and outrage could be built (laughs) and it just started feeling like it was almost gratuitously obnoxious uh, towards her at points and it almost felt a little bit unrealistic but I don't doubt for a second that this is a sort of garbage that trans women would have to put up with in, in reality anyway. Uh, it's maybe just the, the having it compressed into so short a time frame makes it a little bit I don't know, feel a little bit forced. I'm not sure if that's right. It's, a, it's an hour and 45 minutes of abject misery and it's too much for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I certainly don't think it's an easy watch and it's not something at the end of it that I can really recommend to people because they didn't really get much from it other than you know, trans women can have it really bad at points which is fair enough and I don't see any reason why you don't want to make films about that. That's that's fine. It's the perfect, absolutely valid uh, outlook for a film to be exploring, but I don't feel like I got much more of it other than it's bad and I kind of knew that already. And yeah, uh, a bunch of strong performances and, and what, as you say, it's, it's all uh, quite, quite well paced and all that, but it just didn't really say an awful lot to me other than it being a sort of shout of frustration about the way this this woman has been treated, and yeah, if, presumably it helps uh, bring focus, to the, uh, bring some attention to the issues and all that. So that's that's all great. But yeah, as a piece of film, I can't really say I got an awful lot from it. I'm afraid um, I, I probably wouldn't recommend this. Um, you could probably get the same from a number of articles on trans rights that I don't know would be a bit more accessible and take a sake a bit less time, but. If you are in the mood for this kind of thing, if this is the sort of uh, progressivism that you want to get into, then uh, it's certainly a very a valid viewing choice. But yeah, for me, it didn't really do an awful lot. So there. That's you tell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so now that I've been sort of been tell, um, I shall just render myself silent or mute, if you will. Oh, there's a link. Yes, because the next film we're going to talk about is called Mute, so that works. <laughs> <laughs> right, yes, Mute. As part of the Amish community, there's, of course, many dangers to contend with. They are technology-averse lifestyle, of course, making them highly susceptible to the kind of powerboat-related accident that befalls <laughs> a young Leo, as with so many before him. Um, sustaining wounds to his neck, he survives but is rendered Mute. Hence, one supposes, the title of Duncan Jones's latest film and long-standing passion project. Really? Uh, yeah, he's been trying to get this done for a long time. Crikey. It doesn't show. No, no, it does not. <laughs> yeah, so an, an older Leo, played by Alexander Skarsgård, finds himself working as a bartender in a nightclub in near-future Berlin. His quiet life contrasts with the bustle of the city, but some liveliness is provided by his co-worker and girlfriend, Nadira, played by... Zainab Sally. Things seem to be going swimmingly until Nadira says that she's not been entirely honest about her past, but before any salient details can be extracted, she disappears. 
seemingly unrelatedly, their boss and underworld kingpin, Maxim, takes a goon to a local black market medical facility staffed by ex-USA military surgeons Cactus Jack, played by Paul Rudd. Cactus Bill, played by Paul Rudd. I was getting confused with the wrestler Cactus Jack for a second there. Uh, and Duck, played by Justin Theroux. Turns out that they're on the lam from the military police, deserters from some hinted at war that I presume isn't going well, with Bill in particular working for Maxim to earn fake papers for himself and his daughter Josie to get out of the city. Duck, however, seems quite happy to stay, running a sideline of fitting cybernetics to wrong children for, it is eventually revealed, all the wrong reasons. Leo starts investigating the disappearance, which will bring him into conflict with all of the above and indeed a bunch of others in the Berlin underworld that I will skip over, partly for brevity and partly because a fortnight after watching this I have no memory whatsoever about what those intervening stages were or indeed why I was supposed to care about any of it. <laughs> Saying Mute wears its influences on its sleeve would be an understatement. Mute has in fact clubbed Blade Runner over the head, dragged it back to a disused industrial unit, skinned it and is now wearing that skin as a suit. Anne has then written, I am fond of Blade Runner's aesthetics on the sleeve of that skin suit, just to avoid any confusion. Sometimes that works spectacularly. Uh, Well, almost spectacular. It's not quite on the same level as Blade Runner 2049, but there are some scenes that are in the ballpark at least. Uh, But there's more than a few scenes that undercut this by simply being barrel-in with some bad haircuts and more neon lighting than you'd expect. Visuals, and indeed soundtrack aside, hello Clint Mansell. Uh, The rest of Mute is, unfortunately, a bit of a misfire at levels where it ought not to be misfiring. This is, I'm told, an idea that Jones has been cultivating for years now, so quite why it's this pedestrian is bewildering. There's plot developments doled out at the appropriate time when they should appear, but none of them are particularly interesting, and in the end, it's so busy following the thread of who done it that it never stops to consider in the slightest why done it, or indeed, plausible character motivation for pretty much anyone in the film. On the subject of what, why this particular paedophile angle was inserted in the first place or survived any passive editing is a mystery for the ages, and only air adds an air of creepiness to an already far too muddled film. The performances are, I suppose, in isolation fine. Skarsgård does okay, and when called into action his physicality works effectively, but there's no opportunity to evidence much subtlety which would be needed to build enough sympathy to care about his character. Uh, much as I like Justin Theroux, his character here just ought not to be. And on reflection, Paul Rudd does give a decent performance, but he's cast so against type that unfortunately it's just not possible to take him seriously as a credible threat that the film needs, if there's to be any tension uh, in the film as it hopes to build. Now, I'm not by nature prone to believing in conspiracy theories. I suppose that's just the chemtrails doing their job. However, I'm starting to believe there might be one when critics are reviewing Netflix originals. I'm not saying that Mute is a work of genius or that it even succeeds in doing half of what it's out to do, but it is certainly not worse than the Cloverfield Paradox. And I've seen many worse, better-reviewed films in cinemas, and I somehow wonder if part of the review calculus these days takes into consideration how few people will need critics when a film is already available to them without leaving the comfort of their sofas. However, for evidence of a critic cartel curtailing commendations, we'll need some better films than are bounded by the qualities of Bright, Cloverfield Paradox and Mute. Bright was mediocre at best, and I suppose there's some so dreadful it's good qualities to Cloverfield Paradox that makes it a watchable film, but it is hot garbage. Sadly, too often Mute is so average, it's average, which makes it very hard to hold any kind of interest in it, regardless of how pretty it looks. Yes, this is not an experience I would recommend anyone partake in. It's certainly not any worse than Cloverfield Paradox, but I really don't think it's any better either. It's, <laughs> it's not a good film. And the first thing that bothered me, you think it looks nice, but it did not look nice to me at all, because it's not so much the design, it's more... 
it's it's wildly way, derivative. But I thought it's even it's not even so much that it's it's the way it's shot and it's color palette and things that it looks and it feels like a TV episode. It doesn't feel like a film. Um, and I kept expecting it to turn into an episode of Black Mirror. It's really what it made me think of from the beginning. It felt like a TV program. And that's a line that's much uh, more and more blurred nowadays. Like the production quality of TV episodes just tends to be so high, but mm. it felt like a TV program and not a film. And so that kind of set me on the wrong foot from the off. But other than that, yes, I, I largely agree with almost everything you said, Scott. It's why for pedophile? Yeah. It's, what were they thinking? It's to create some sort of threat to Paul Rudd's daughter, but I kind of don't care about Paul Rudd's daughter or Paul Rudd in this film, and it, so that doesn't help. And it just, <laughs> it seems creepy and unnecessary, with no particular payoff. Um, particularly given how that story strand ends, it seems to have abandoned half of what the thing that was set up anyway. Yeah, none of that was relevant to how that plays out. And the, yeah, Paul Rudd, really, I mean, I can see the appeal of Paul Rudd in this, and that he's playing this really, and you, you think he's a fairly genial character, first turns out he's quite a rotter. <laughs> um, so you can see the appeal of Paul Rudd in playing that. He's, um, I'm not sure, yeah, he's going to want to try something different at the very least, but it doesn't work. No. Because his innate Paul Ruddiness shines yeah. through <laughs> is the big problem there. And yeah, there's there are these other kind of real frustrations too, like a, I think in a pathetic attempt to tie into the world of Moon, um, that yeah, just that I mean, I do not sit well at all. That I mean, there are three different moments where the Sam Bell trial is seen on TV, um, and one was fine. I would have accepted mm. one, but then there's another two, and then really I feel like shoehorned in references to Lunar Industries that it felt so awkward. Yeah, I remember too, and this is part of what Jones is saying, he's, he's thinking of it as some sort of trilogy with this and some other project that he's got in Moon, but Moon and this film have no relation whatsoever. You know, There is nothing that connects this film to Moon, apart no, from a few points where you've just shoehorned it in, but if you take those out, it makes no difference to this film or Moon. So... It's not really part of a trilogy. It's just three films you think might be sort of in the same cinematic universe. But and you know that's fine. But it just comes across as a little bit self indulgent and kind of reminded me of a much better film that I wish I'd been watching instead. Yeah, uh, and the film uh, Moon looks like a film. Whereas maybe it's a weird thing to come up, but it really bothered me how much this didn't look like a film. And um, whereas Moon did, but it's it's so not connected to this film yet this Duncan Jones seems to have been really trying to force this connection that isn't there and it's mm. and I mean, you'd maybe forgive it if you cared about anything else that happened yeah but you don't and the the main bad guy who never really seems like a particular bad guy in terms of like the underworld king figure rather uh, mm. king figure rather than the Paul Rudd character but um yeah the Maxim doesn't seem particularly dangerous or menacing or bad he's more just there yeah and he seems to have been cast as a black guy as a black russian simply so they could make a black russian cocktail joke at some point <laughs> which is pretty weak reason for characterization and 
yeah, if you're more engaged in the film, you either you don't notice that stuff or you kind of give it a pass. But yeah, nobody's interesting. Nothing interesting happens, and I'm just like sort of left at the end wondering why Peter Fire, why? Yeah, hugely disappointing film. I was really hoping for a lot more from Duncan Jones. Yes, uh, I agree completely. It was a. Uh... Despite the advanced terrible reviews, I'd still be looking forward to it because it's got Duncan Jones attached to it, and even uh, Warcraft is not enough to fully diminish that that name for me yet. But this has certainly put a bit of a damper on whatever he's working on next. But uh, yeah, well, let's let's see what he gets up to next if he needs to allow to work again after this. But um, who knows? Uh, as we kind of discussed a bit with Bright, I don't really know what makes a Netflix successful film. Maybe this has captured enough eyeballs for it to be a, a success by whatever they determine a success to be. It's all very hard to say when you don't really have any kind of idea of what uh, streams or numbers or anything would go, would go for it. But Yeah, and because they obviously um, they don't release their figures, they're not required to, and mm-hmm. they keep all that stuff pretty secretive. It's hard to get any kind of handle on, on what's a success or not unless they specifically mention something, and for yeah. most of the things, they don't. Yeah, but I certainly hope that we... We see more for him. Nothing else. He's he's proved in the past. I mean, Moon is a fantastic film, which we heartily recommend everyone and did uh, very recently. I, I would love to see him recapture that form on something else. He surely doesn't necessarily need a huge budget to do that. So I don't know. Maybe with a different set of uh, uh, goals from Netflix, if, if even if they fund that film, that might work. Who knows? But uh, yeah, the <laughs> in this case, mute. No, just don't bother. Yes. So that brings us to the best film of last year, according to some people, <laughs> uh, The Shape of Water. <laughs> oh, you're a funny man, Scott. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. Crazily, some people think that, but yes, some people eat blood sausage. People are idiots. <laughs> Guillermo del Toro is The Shape of Water, then, or Mute Woman falls in, falls in Love with the Creature from the Black Lagoon. Maryland, 1962. Elisa Esposito, Sally Hawkins works as a cleaner at a military aerospace research facility. Though mute and communicating only through sign language, Eliza isn't particularly lonely or isolated as such characters often are in film. Having good friends and co-worker Zelda, Octavia Spencer, and neighbour Giles, Richard Jenkins. But she does seek romantic entanglement, which comes to her from the most unusual source. Into her place of work is brought a scaly fish monster, Dragged all the way from a river in South America where it was worshipped as a god by the locals to the good old US of A by human monster Strickland, Michael Shannon. And why? Because they believe this creature's unique breathing physiology will allow them to gain the edge on those damn ruskies in the race for the moon. Physiological research which is apparently best achieved by... torture? Hmm. Hey, you need gills so you could breathe all that oxygen on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> yes, or and, and 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 you work out how the gills work by smacking something with an electric cattle prod. I, I believe that's um, very cromulent science. You just keep hitting it with the science agitator until the science <laughs> falls out of them. <laughs> yes, that's that. It's it's how people get Nobel prizes, Scott. Yes. When Eliza, who, in being a woman, a cleaner, and disabled, is more or less invisible to those around and above her, accidentally spies the creature. She begins to take an interest in, and eventually falls in love with, it. She creates a plan to free the creature from the research facility and return it to the sea, despite it having come from a river. Um, sorry, but I, I got totally hung up on the part where the 
creature has to be kept in salt water and they, they very yes. clearly established it came from a river which is fresh water and, and I, it's, I, could, I couldn't stop thinking about that it was driving me crazy it brought its own salt <laughs> she comes up with this plan to return to the sea um, and receives help in so doing from Zelda, Giles and another very unexpected source the creature then stays in Elias' apartment for a while as her relationship progresses and while an obsessed and enraged Strickland continues to search for it. Um, talking of this um, film's great science credentials, it also thinks that if you stick a couple of towels in front of a small gap in a door, then you can fill an entire room with water. <laughs> um, yeah, Suspension of disbelief was not working for me in this film, can you tell? <laughs> It's commendable that Eliza's friends, in particular Zelda, aren't judgmental about her relationship. But at the same time, I don't understand why they're not saying, Dude, you f***ed a fish! <laughs> and that's that's my biggest issue with The Shape of Water. I mean, I think we've said at many points, we've, we've, we've pushed for a progressive case for inclusivity in a lot of things, in race, sexuality, but I think this is probably where we have to draw the line at bestiality. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. Really, that is my biggest issue with The Shape of Water. While I have no problem with interspecies romance in, say, a Star Trek kind of way, in, for instance, Doug Jones, who plays the creature here and has worked with Guillermo del Toro so often, if it were Doug Jones' character Saru from Star Trek Discovery, who's an intelligent creature, then it's fine. But that's a romance between intellectual peers. But here, it's just not. <laughs> Beyond the creature's bewilderment at its unfamiliar location and the torture and trauma it has suffered, it remains that, a creature. It always felt to me more like a pet than a person, and I just didn't buy Elisa falling in love with it. Look, what I'm saying is Guillermo del Toro has made a film about bestiality, <laughs> and I'm not okay with that. <laughs> My other big issue is um, the film's colour design. wonder if perhaps Guillermo del Toro is a fan of the works of Krzysztof Kozlowski. This is my headcanon explanation for The Shape of Water's oppressively green palette. That this is to be the first part of his trilogy based on the colours of the Mexican <laughs> rather than the French flag. <laughs> Tres colores verde. This greenness is supposed to represent an unwelcoming and unromantic future. Whit? Um, I don't think look at green and think oh green that's futuristic uh, um, I'm the crazy one uh, the colour and lighting of Elisa's apartment makes some more sense in that it's supposed to have a watery feel but while it may have a few slightly more blue tinged greens it's still green and that green really gets wearing after a while about 22 minutes to be precise other living species in the film are coloured yellow and orange, and though orange is supposed to represent a 60s ugliness, what it mostly represents is a blessed visual relief, even when it's in the home of Michael Shannon's thuggish Strickland. And I actually kind of enjoy the shape of water well enough as a fairy tale, or a fish show if you will, but it is resolutely nothing special, and I am beyond baffled at the praise that has been heaped upon it. Hmm. Richard Jenkins is a likeable presence, Sally Hawkins does a really great job in a role where she can use her voice to act and Michael Shannon is a wonderfully creepy and sinister villain but beyond that ordinary at best and best picture I think someone's putting something in my water supply <laughs> What annoyed me most about this film let's go all the way to the end of it 
and no one did ever tell me what the shape of water was. <laughs> Is it a rhombus? I don't know. I just don't know, Drew. But yeah, if, if anyone who thinks this was the best film last year it's is a, smoking um, crack. Four-sided hypercube, Scott. <laughs> uh, I don't think I don't think water's a time cube, but that can't work. But mm. yeah, anyone who watches this and watches Coco and thinks, oh, well, obviously The Shape of Water was a better film needs their head examined. I don't know what's up with them. Yes, and their crack taken away from them. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, a, a baffling. Now, no more drugs for that, man. I'm, I'm always glad that executives somewhere are giving Guillermo del Toro 20 to 30 million pounds to go off and make a film that is, as with this one, it's you can really see the care and attention that went into it. It's immaculately shot. I don't agree with the choice of the colour palettes, but, you know, it's all on technical levels, it's pretty much faultless. Yeah, in terms technically of it's excellent. That's absolutely yeah. true. Lots of actors are alike, some pretty strong performances, and a film I just don't care about in the slightest. Because uh, he's done this a number of times. I mean, the last Guillermo del Toro film I actually liked was Blade Two. <laughs> I'm not claiming that as a high point in the man's artistic canon, but it was the last film he did that I enjoyed, even uh, like Pan's Labyrinth. Again, I can I can recognise this is a well-made film. It's a really well-executed film, and I just don't care about it in the slightest. And it felt exactly the same way Shape of Water. It just uh, completely bounced off me. I, I can recognise the qualities that are in it, but it doesn't add up to anything. Well, it added up to much less than some of its parts. <laughs> yeah, uh, I just... Then or day, I don't know what I was supposed to be taking from this film. I mean, even as a fairy tale, it's like I, can, I, I, I see how it's structured that way, but I don't know what the take-home message was other than don't torture people. Is that it? Is that the message of it? That and give fish green. a chance? I don't know. And green, Scott. Yeah, mainly... I think the main message is green. Mainly green. Oppressive, oppressive green. That's I did. I meant to check what Pantone's colour of the year last year was, because I just wonder whether that, if that was what it was based on. There was, um, there was a, consider- I should have checked the credits to see if there was a um, financial consideration from Pantone. <laughs> what else is the film? I don't, I don't know much else to add over what you're saying there. I just don't really see what the fuss is about. It's a great performance from no. Michael Shannon, but he is hampered somewhat by being just evil for the sake of being evil. It's like how, I thought they might be getting into something a little bit deeper when they kind of... Uh, visit his home and you see his family and all that but no he's still just evil for the sake of being evil there's no real need yeah for he's it. really menacing he just... and it's a good performance but yeah there's no there's no nuance or subtlety to the character he's just like he's just a horrible person with no yeah, i don't know no what his clear motivation, motivation for all this is yeah um the rest of it yeah as i say it's strong performances technically it's excellent and all all that but at the end of the day i just don't yeah, in service of not a lot yeah i don't understand what the point of it is and i don't understand what i was supposed to be getting from it and uh, at the end of the day yeah it's it's, it's just it's a little bit dull which is not great yeah absolutely baffling now this is it, I'm, I'm really glad they'll tell toro keeps making these films but i mean look at this crimson peak god what else has he done uh the hellboy, hellboy pacific two, rim pacific rim god none of these Which films are light no pacific rim is you know at least you can kind of see what in all these films you can you, some of them i can kind of see what he's going for even if he didn't quite make it and you know the hellboy and pacific rim stuff is you know attempts to reach for a, a kind of wider uh mass market sort of audience i can i can see i didn't mm-hmm. quite make it pan's labyrinth i think i probably had a bit more sympathy for but this film i just don't i just don't get it i don't see what the, what the appeal of it is 
it's fine. If you like Del Toro's previous films, I'm sure you'll get something out of this. But I, yeah, he, he's a filmmaker who's making these excellently crafted films I just don't care about. And um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah um, so it's it's a strange contradiction, but he makes really interesting films that I don't find in any way interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I really, but it's interesting you mentioned Pan's Labs. That, that that film I have come to appreciate more in subsequent years. But yeah, I really didn't care for that at all at the time. Yeah, and I've never went back and revisited it, but yeah. Pacific Rim is, is was bad first terrible. Time, yes. And the stuff he's been involved in, because he's, he's one of those people who tends to get his name attached to a lot of stuff in the way Quentin Tarantino does. Yeah. And things he's been attached to, like Mama, which was terrible. Hmm. Um, and other those things that made the huge mistake of showing you the creature, and it was just absolutely laughable. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, it's interesting because I I didn't really I mean I kind of appreciated the design of um, Hellboy, but I thought both of the films were pretty dull. Yeah, but it's interesting you mentioned Blade Two because that was probably the last Guillermo del Toro film I thought was really really good, and it's yeah. a sequel to a comic book film. It's, yeah, uh, and I I also it's, I remember enjoying Blade Two very much, but it's been quite a long time since I've seen it now, and I, I'm wondering. How much of my affection for that is actually based on that wonderful clip from the Extras <laughs> yeah. DVD? Um, and for anyone not familiar, there's a there's a clip on the uh, the Extras DVD of Blade Two where they're showing you the original screen test for the Damascus character, where instead of being bald as he is in the final cut, he's got long, draggly, straggly hair, and he basically looks like a vampire Michael Bolton. <laughs> <laughs> and there's just um. Guillermo del Toro, he, he's, he's happy to poke fun at himself. It's just creasing himself laughing. He's going, ha, 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 look at that f- <laughs> Um, I, I'm kind of worried about Return to Play 2 in case I find that that's actually why I remember it so fondly now. But, <laughs> yeah, but film of the year. Mental. Yes, jog on. <laughs> that takes us to the end of this podcast, I believe. Do you have any other business you would like to raise with the, the assembled masses? I do not. I I have said my piece. Yes, so um, I guess before we sign off, I'll, I'd like to thank anyone who's uh, shared or retweeted the podcast links on Twitter. It's all, it's all very much appreciated. That's in, uh, so that includes the likes of, but by no means limited to, uh, Stephen Nelson, uh, Matt Toller, Sonic Yoda. Sorry, I'm mixing and matching uh, between sorry, user real names and user handles here. I don't know if that's appropriate or not. Uh, the fine folks at the Magic Lantern podcast, uh, Colin Erica. And uh, we do have a little bit of feedback uh, from the Twitters. Uh, at Blake Wrights from the I'm the Host podcast. Uh, says that he came out of Shape of Water feeling like he'd watched a Del Toro flavoured French rom-com. Worked reasonably well. Don't know if I'd rewatch. Uh, he had issues with Black Panther's underlying politics, especially a neoliberal ending. I thought about mentioning that, but explaining it and also why I think it's nonsense is like a half hour conversation that, <laughs> of a film I don't really care about enough to get into for it. Uh, yeah, there's there's a strange amount of people who are claiming it's some sort of alt-right thing as well, which is just baffling to me. Um, yeah, Lots of strange value projections going on to Black Panther, I think, mainly just because of the, <laughs> the current racially charged times we're living in. Um, Yes, uh, but the value of a strong black hero for black kids anywhere is probably way more important, so that's yeah. kind of what we agree with. Annihilation is one that all my horror friends said to see, Mute is one that all my sci-fi nerds friends said to see, and Lady Bird is one that all my cinephile friends said to see. 
and it's something that Drew says, don't see any of them. Uh, oh, no, see some annihilation. Annihilation's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really, there's people who told you to see, um, you have friends who told you to see Mute. Blake, <laughs> mate, get new friends. He has seen zero of them because he's a bad person. You're not a bad person. You're not a bad person at all. You're just someone who has weird friends. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Uh, mute? Really? No. So, we welcome any and all feedback on Twitter, so please do so. Uh, we're on there at Fuds on Film. We're also on Facebook, that's facebook.com slash Fuds on Film, and you can email us podcast at fudsonfilm.com. That's the way we roll. Uh, we'll be back with you on the first with a look at some live action adaptations of some animated classics for given values of classic. Given the values of classic, yes. yes. <laughs> Uh, so we'll be with you there on the first of next month. The next month, this being March, is April. <laughs> and uh, it's been a long week. Yes, long. Week. Uh, yeah. So we'll catch you then. Until then, ta-da. Nos vemos en la cara, mate.